like to have us turn to our text for this morning, which is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. John 21 through 10, and that's on page 880, if you're following along in your pew Bibles. I had an interesting experience this week. Um, I tend to write my sermons a few weeks out uh, from when I'm going to preach them. Then I just kind of let them sit. I revisit them early on the week that I'm going to preach them. I go back through them, edit them, try to make them somewhat good, uh, and then bring them into the pulpit on Sunday. But uh, this week, on Monday, when I started going back through what I had written on this passage, John chapter 20, I realized that it wasn't good at all. And I realized quickly why which was that I had started writing two very different sermons in the same sermon. Both were based on this text, but I'd sort of started out going in one direction with this text, and I kind of midway through inexplicably decided to go in an entirely different direction. And I realized that there was no reconciling the two to each other, that it wasn't going to make sense and that it wasn't going to work very well for Easter Sunday morning. So on Wednesday, I did something I've never done before as a pastor. I sat down, I split that Word document in two, and I finished writing the second half of the sermon that I had written the first half of, and then I went to the other one, and I wrote the first half of the second half. Are you following me so far? You get how this works? Okay. And then um, I was thinking about, we've got a sermon series coming up this summer. We're going to spend a number of weeks looking at the Holy Spirit. And so I did something I've never done before as a pastor. I simply prayed over those two sermons. I went home, I slept, I came back on Thursday, and I went through both of them and edited them as if I was going to preach them. And I simply asked God through his Holy Spirit to tell me which one to preach. I said, you know who's gonna be here on Sunday, and I don't, and you know what they need to hear, so lead me to which one you want me to preach. And it was pretty clear through that process which one it was. Um, So if it especially resonates with you this morning, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if it doesn't, don't tell me. (laughs) John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And this is what the Apostle John writes. He says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in and saw the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, one of my favorite movies is the 2011 movie Super 8. One part monster movie, the other part coming of age tale. It's a wonderful little film that celebrates the 1970s uh, filmmaking and what it's like to grow up as a kid in a small rural town. Honestly, it's kind of like the pre-Stranger Things version of Stranger Things. So if you like the Netflix television show Stranger Things, but you've never seen Super 8, go watch it sometime. You can thank me later. 
uh, especially since we're in between seasons right now. Uh, It also, though, is a lot like the films of Steven Spielberg. And that's because growing up, J.J. Abrams was a huge fan of movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., and The Goonies. And so he filled Super 8 chock full of references to them. Well, in the same way, the Apostle John is a fan of references too. Put simply, he fills his gospel, his account of Jesus, with references, allusions, and echoes to other parts of scripture. For instance, his depiction of John the Baptist in chapter one looks quite a bit like the Old Testament prophet of Elijah. His description of Jesus feeding the 5,000 reminds us of Moses and the bread of heaven, the manna that God used to feed the Israelites in the wilderness. And his account of Jesus walking on water recalls such Old Testament passages as Noah and the ark, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the story of the prophet Jonah, which we looked at a few months ago here. But of all the references to the Old Testament that John makes throughout his gospel, maybe most significant are the ones that he makes to the very beginning of scripture, to Genesis chapter one and the story of creation. For instance, that's actually how John opens his entire gospel. The first three words of the Bible, the first three words of Genesis one are in the beginning. Those are the first three words of scripture. And how does John open and begin his gospel, his story, his account of Jesus? By quoting them. In the beginning. And yet that's not the only time John references Genesis 1 in his gospel. It might be the most famous time that he references Genesis 1 in his gospel, but it's not the only time. That's because John actually references Genesis 1 again here in our text for this morning. You see, just as he begins the story of his gospel, the story of Jesus with Genesis 1, so he also begins the most important story that he tells in his gospel the story of Jesus' resurrection with Genesis 1-2. And so to understand this text, this story of the resurrection, and what John wants to tell us about it, what he wants to tell us about Jesus' resurrection and what it means, that's where we need to begin. We need to begin not just with the story of the resurrection and Jesus rising from the dead, but we need to begin instead where John begins that story, in the beginning with God's creation of the world. John opens this text with some pretty significant words. In verse one, he writes, early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. Now I'll admit, in and of themselves, these words might not seem that significant. Uh, After all, it seems like John's just sort of setting the stage here, right? He's setting the scene, setting up the narrative, setting us as his readers up for everything else that he's about to tell us about Jesus' resurrection. But when you look at those words against the backdrop of Genesis chapter one, you start to see some connections. Again, Genesis one starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Did you catch it? They're not exact quotes, But did you catch the references? 
Both passages talk about darkness. They both talk about the first day. That's how Genesis 1 starts, and that's how John starts his account of the resurrection. And I think looking at these two passages that John is trying to make an intentional reference to Genesis chapter 1. Why? Why would he do that? Why would John reference Genesis 1 here? What's the connection? What's the parallel? What is he trying to get at with that? Well, in order to understand that, we need to talk a bit about some of the language in Genesis 1. Uh, we've actually talked about this a couple times recently, first in our series on faith and politics last fall, and then most recently in our series on the book of Jonah. Honestly, I feel like I'm bringing this up a bit too much, but I just keep discovering more connections to this uh, in other parts of the Bible. So I guess we're going to keep hearing about it. Um, I've actually already started my commentary work on that Holy Spirit series, and I can already tell you the second one in that series is going to probably talk about this again. Basically, one of the major themes of Genesis chapter 1 is God creating order out of chaos. That's one of the major themes of Genesis 1, God creating order out of chaos. That's what we see going on in those verses we just read. Genesis 1 says that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Those words, formless and empty, are incredibly important. In Hebrew, there are the words tohu vabohu, and what they literally mean is empty to the point of lacking order, void of structure or organization, absent of form or shape. The text also tells us that darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And both darkness and water in Scripture are symbols of chaos. And so, what Genesis 1 is telling us, in other words, is that before God started creating, before he started working on this world and speaking into it and arranging it, the earth was, was lacking in shape. It was devoid of structure. It was empty and without semblance of form or organization. In short, it was pure and utter chaos. Until God starts creating. Because once God starts creating, he starts bringing order into all that chaos. Let's look at how this works. Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5 again. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So God creates light. And then he separates that light from the darkness and brings order into it, structure, organization. And in the process, he creates day and night, and then he just keeps going. He keeps creating. He keeps introducing more and more of that order and structure and organization into his world. Day two, he separates the waters and creates the sea and the sky. Day three, he separates the water from the dry ground and creates land and plants. And then he starts working his way back and mirroring it all. That's because on day four, he goes back to the light and he creates the sources of that light, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he goes back to the sea and the sky and he creates sea creatures and birds. And then day six, he goes back to the land and he creates animals and people. And here's the point. The point of all of it is that God is a God of order. He's a God of structure. 
He's a God who takes chaos and he makes it calm. He's a God who takes darkness and he makes light. He's a God who takes the raging waters and he makes sky, sea, and dry land. And then he fills all of it with abundance, with flourishing, with life. That's what God did in the beginning. He brought order out of chaos. And that, John says, is what he's doing again here. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, in the beginning, God began bringing order to his creation. And now, on the first day of a new week, while it was still dark, he's doing it again. Only this time, he's not bringing order back to that creation that he started all the way in Genesis 1. He's bringing order to his new creation, his renewed creation. Mary Magdalene gets to be the first witness of that new creation. Uh, And to be honest, I don't think she realizes it. I love this. The most life-changing earth-changing, universe, cosmos-changing news in all of history, and Mary just sort of happens upon it. John writes, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary's there in the beginning, in the darkness, at the start of God's new world, and she doesn't realize it. Now, to be fair to her, right, who of us would? Uh, Who of us facing something like resurrection would realize, I mean really realize, what's happening, what we're seeing, at least if we didn't know the end of the story like we all do? Probably none of us. And Mary doesn't realize it either. She doesn't realize in that moment that she's witnessing the dawn of a new creation. Instead, and this makes sense, there are apparently a lot of these back then, she thinks she's witnessing a grave robbery. Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which, by the way, is John's way of referring to himself in his gospel. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. It's got to be a grave robbery. Someone's stolen Jesus' body. And so Mary runs off to Peter and John, who then in turn run off to the tomb. Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And then here are some of the most monumental words in all of Scripture. He saw and believed. Now, this is where things, I think, begin to become a bit more clear. First, this is no grave robbery. For starters, as John mentions a couple of times, the strips of linen, the grave clothes are still in the tomb, right? And as pretty much every commentator in all of history has pointed out, that's pretty strong evidence that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. After all, why would grave robbers in the midst of a grave robbery take the time to unwrap the body they're stealing? The simple answer is they wouldn't. I love how Frederick Dale Bruner puts this in his commentary. I actually laughed out loud in my office when I read this a few few weeks ago. 
He writes, across the centuries, the folded clothes in the tomb have argued against theft. For example, Chrysostom, Calvin, Bengal, and Brown, the last of whom summarizes, and then Bruner quotes Brown, grave robbers would not have taken the time to unwrap the body, thus giving themselves the burden of carrying a stiff, naked corpse around. It's kind of obvious when you think about it like that, right? But then second, there's the orderliness of it all. Because again, if this was a grave robbery and the robbers, for whatever reason, actually did decide to unwrap the corpse, they wouldn't have done it carefully, methodically, making sure that all the grave clothes were neatly put back in place, right? No, they would have just flung them around. After all, robberies are time sensitive. They're smash and grab, you do them quick. But that's not what we see here. The grave clothes aren't flung around. Instead, they're orderly arranged. They're folded, laid out, and lying in their place. And so this isn't the scene of a smash and grab burglary with everything strewn about. Instead, it looks more like a hospital discharge, orderly, organized, even clinical. And so something different has happened here. Something out of the ordinary, something at odds with the way that these sorts of things normally go in this broken, fallen, death and decay world. John tells us that he, John, saw and believed. Saw and believed what? Resurrection. And that changes Everything. You see, in the beginning there was darkness and water, chaos and disorder, formlessness and emptiness, and into all of that God spoke order, abundance, goodness, and life. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Well now, on the first day of another new week, God has done it again. Into the darkness and disorder, chaos and emptiness, not this time of a formless, shapeless creation, but rather the darkness, disorder, chaos, and emptiness of sin, death, and despair. God has again spoken order. He has again spoken abundance. He has again spoken goodness, and he has again spoken life, new life, resurrection life, life in Jesus Christ, his son, into this world. My friends, that's what's going on here. That's what all of this means. That's the message of Easter and the empty tomb with its neat folded grave clothes on the first day of the week in the darkness. It's telling us that the first day of God's new creation has begun. The old has gone, the new has come, and all things, everything, all of what God made in the beginning, including us, will be redeemed and renewed just the way God meant it to be in the beginning. In fact, it's already started. That process has already begun. It's not complete, but it's begun. I love how N.T. Wright puts all of this in his commentary on this passage. It's a little long, but stick with me. I think it's worth it. He writes... Darkness on the face of the deep. The formless beginning, the chaos, the void, the beginning. The wind and the word. 
God's breath, God's speech, summoning things never known before, life and light, the first day creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. The sixth day, creation is complete. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Flesh dies, though. Chaos comes again. Darkness descends on the little weeping group at the cross. Then the long Sabbath, the rest in the cold tomb. And now, still in the darkness, the first day of the week, the new week, the new creation, the eighth day, eyes red from weeping and sleepless Sabbath nights, women at the tomb, perhaps to bring more spices, perhaps just to weep, perhaps just to be there because there was nowhere else to be, nothing else to do, nothing else mattered, and then comes the moment. The younger man, the beloved disciple, goes into the tomb after Peter, and the idea that they had had to that point about what must have happened, someone taking the body away but unwrapping it first, suddenly looks silly and irrelevant. Something quite new surges up in the young disciple, a wild delight at God's creative power. He saw and believed believed that new creation had begun, believed that the world had turned the corner out of its long winter and into spring at last, believed that God said yes to Jesus, to all that he had been and done, believed that Jesus was alive again. My friends, that is what John is telling us here. He's telling us that everything has changed. The grave is empty. The Lord is gone. Hope has risen. Belief has begun. Newness and light have broken in, and now all the bad things of the world are beginning to come undone, beginning to come untrue, beginning to come back to the way God meant them to be in the beginning. That's the significance of Easter. It's the beginning, the start, the first day of God's new creation. It's the first day of God beginning to make everything the way it's supposed to be again. Which brings us to the gospel. You know what the gospel is, right? I hope so. We talk about it enough here, don't we? The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that God made a good world. He ordered it, structured it, organized it just the way he meant it to be. Because of our sin, though, neither we nor this world are good anymore. And so God made a plan. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He came to live among us, to teach us, to shape us, to renew and reform us. And then he actually died for us. He died to take away our sins, our iniquities, our trespasses, so that we could be clean and pure and have a relationship with God again. But he didn't stay dead. That's because on the third day, he rose to new life. He defeated sin and death, and in so doing, he made that victory over sin and that victory over death, that resurrection, new life possible, not just for him, but for us. 
In other words, the gospel is the story of how God, through his son Jesus Christ, brought order into chaos a second time and made both us and this world good again. And that's what we celebrate on Easter. That's the significance of what John tells us here. That's the hope that we hold, that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, God's new creation has begun. I'll end with how N.T. Wright ends his commentary on this passage. He writes this, ask people around the world what they think is the biggest day of the year for Christians, and most will say Christmas. The true answer, and I wish the churches would find ways of making this clear, is Easter, because this is the moment of new creation. If it hadn't been for Easter, nobody would have dreamed of celebrating Christmas. This is the first day of God's new week. The darkness is gone, and the sun is shining. Indeed it is. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, you made this world good. You made it exactly how you intended it to be, as you always do. That's your power, that's your glory. Things turn out exactly how you want them. Because of our sin and our stubborn will to rule ourselves, this world is no longer the way that you intended it to be and what a mess we've made. But God, you have not left us nor this world alone in our sin. You have come after us. In the person of your son, Jesus Christ, you have defeated sin and death and despair and made new life possible for us in this entire world. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Thank you for your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.